Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, season two, season premiere. I'm here with Rodney, and we have two guests today. Uh, One is Reg Spencer, a leading analyst covering lithium space for years at Canaccord Genuity. We also have Will Adams from Fast Markets. Fast Markets has uh, their inaugural uh, battery conference in Amsterdam uh, in late September, and there's also uh, a nickel conference that they're sponsoring in uh, Jakarta in early September. Canaccord hosted uh, two weeks ago a major conference in uh, Boston called uh, The Future of Transport, uh, Lithium Americas, Piedmont Lithium, Critical Elements, Neolithium, I understand a standard lithium and critical elements and Namaska were there as well. Meanwhile, Diggers and Dealers was uh, the show. Pilbara was down there, gave an interview on CNBC. But uh, Reg Spencer was there and, and basically said that uh, gold is hot, but lithium is cold. But first, we want to flag for everyone uh, something new. There's now an opportunity for all of you to uh, contribute to Lithium Ion Rocks through the Patreon platform. And uh, here's a little advertisement that uh, we put together to launch it. Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks Patreon advertisement. I think it has great potential. That's five to seven times GDP. Hi, my name is Rodney Hooper, and I am co-host of the podcast Lithium Iron Rocks. My podcast co-host, Howard Klein, and I have spent many hours discussing the industry with CEOs, industry participants, traders, and all forms of users along the battery supply chain. Rodney and I started Lithium Iron Rocks to broaden the reach of our research into the most exciting producers and aspiring producers of lithium and other new energy materials fueling these batteries. I've been an investor, analyst, and capital markets advisor for natural resource equities for over 18 years, including some of the most prominent lithium battery materials development successes. A massive disruption is underway in transportation and utilities, fueled by lithium-ion battery technology. Rodney and I have joined the Patreon platform to deepen our engagement with our listeners as well as to help defray travel and other costs associated with producing lithium-ion rocks. Howard and I would like to attend additional conferences, do on-site field visits and site visits to upstream and downstream assets, and deliver that information to our listeners. Rodney and I maintain a proprietary supply and demand and pricing model, updated quarterly. For those that are happy to support us on Patreon, we would look to share our proprietary supply and demand models and give regular updates on those. We are all keen on lithium and we'd like to share more. Thank you for listening. As an additional incentive uh, to subscribe to the Patreon platform and uh, be in at least our second uh, $10 tier, we will be providing some exclusive content and, and previews. So Rodney and I, spoke about uh, Albemarle and Livent um, offline, which is not part of this podcast, but will be uh, in an upcoming podcast that will also include SQM's uh, commentary after their conference call this week. But uh, if you want a preview on that Albemarle Livent, please subscribe to uh, our Patreon site uh, at the $10 level uh, per month, at least, and uh, you'll have access to this and all future uh, you know, exclusive previews.
And with that, we will begin the first episode of season two. Despite the fact that it is today, the 50th anniversary of Woodstock concert, two very significant concerts uh, took place in New York over the summer while we were on break. One was the Rolling Stones, the other was Queen. So I just gave you some reference to We Will Rock You. We are the champions. I had a great opportunity to reconnect with the Stones, and there were so many narratives and so many songs. And we begin with uh, Will Adams, who uh, Fast Markets has been uh, particularly bearish uh, all year, and uh, they've been right. Uh, We had him on the show in Santiago. Hello, darkness, my old friend. And uh, today, do-do-do-do, heartbreaker. Pretty much sums up lithium It's good to have you again, Uh, Will. Just uh, looking at the markets out there, we've seen um, some big movements on the cobalt front from Glencore that's done good things for the price, but the same can't be said of Albemarle's proposed uh, cutbacks and expansions. Uh, Won't you uh, give us some feedback on on the pricing sheet that uh, you put out? We continue to see weaker prices uh, on spot prices, um, and and we think... That is basically down to an oversupply situation, um, and it also hasn't been helped by probably weaker than expected demand as well. Um, for the first time, I think in July, we saw Chinese um, NEV sales fall uh, year on year. I think their uh, production was down 6.9%, with sales down 4.7%. Uh, so that's a bit of a, a worry sign on the, on the uh, demand side, even though we think that will be fairly temporary. But as you said, the Albemarle announcements, I think um, most of that is going to affect the market further, much further out. And therefore, that's not a um, it's a sign of sort of some sort of supply restraint, but not at the moment, not near term. Um, So I think at the moment, as I said, oversupply and we're seeing sort of prices um, come under downward pressure as a result of that. Lavent and Albemarle are saying non-integrated converters can't be making a margin at these prices. So the only give is Spodium and Concentrate, and they really don't have much give. So how much lower can we really go? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think, you know, where there is sort of margin in along the supply chain, and especially um, upstream, I think then, you know, the converters will probably in order for them to be able to, uh, con- to continue to buy spodumin, then they will need to um, get lower prices from their suppliers. Um, so where there is margin and, and you know, producers might be in that um, uncomfortable position of either having to say, well, we will lower our prices um, or you know, we, they will go somewhere else maybe. Um, so I think there is still room on the downside. Um, yeah, we're certainly forecasting prices to... Um, remain under pressure we think you know we think the the fall will start to slow um but we do still see prices um coming uh, coming down further at the moment and uh what would that translate into then in implied uh, spodumin concentrate prices yeah 585 so at the moment um yeah, I think we will start to see some of the, some of those spodumin prices uh, head lower. I think it's going to happen in a, in a step-down process. Although the margins might be tight, I think the margins will get tighter. Converters will then continue to, to produce, and therefore that will also probably end up pushing prices down. The rate of price fall will start to slow down now and flatten out. It, it would be good to see a rebound in demand. We do start to see, expect to see some sort of pickup in 
EV demand uh, into the fourth quarter, which is fairly seasonal. And I think after the subsidy changes we saw earlier on in the year, plus with the sort of the fallout from the trade dispute and the general economic weakness, you know, those two factors are having an effect. I think the subsidy thing we will move through and move past, and that will sort of start to see demand pick up again. Um, and if we were to see a trade, a uh, new trade agreement, then I think that would be a, uh, that would be significant for global growth generally. And I think that would we'd also see um, households and businesses uh, start to build up their confidence again, and we'd start to see sort of more spending on some of these large ticket items such as vehicles. But you know, we've waited a long time. It's been going for over a year now. I think the the, the impact, the fallout from the sort of the, the trade dispute um, uh, at some stage. I think when it does come, when we do get a new agreement, I think we we will be in for a general uh, pickup in de- in demand and in and that I think to some extent will feed through to prices. But the over, for lithium itself, the overall oversupply is probably going to. It might put a um, a cap on prices, so we might see prices level out, but we don't expect too much on the upside anytime soon. And uh, what about things like, you know, Tesla about to launch the Model 3 in, in China and, and possibly the, the Model Y, etc., and Europe going from 60 EV models to 214. By 2021, uh, do you think that will will help counter, you know, a general slowdown or the um, subsidy changes? You know, we're bullish on demand. It's, and I think we have hit a bit of a, a, a weak spot, as, as I've sort of mentioned, and that was probably, it's been, it's been weaker than we expected it would be. But I think overall, there's, you know, the, the demand's only going one way. And I think as we get more, more EVs, there'll be more choice. As prices come down, um, we will we'll see uh, you know strong EV uptake and I, you know, that doesn't change and I think that's we're get, we've, we're going to see that for you know decades not just years. Um, I think as a, right at the moment I think we're just in a situation because we saw a lot of new supply coming on last year and we're in a situation now where we are in a labour supply situation because of that new supply and as a result of that we now have to wait for um, demand to pick up uh, or to catch up not to pick up but to catch up. I think you know it's get, it's just a matter of time, uh, and we might see in this sort of low price environment, um, we might see more uh, supply restraint as well, which would then also um, speed up that sort of the time when we start to um, see move towards a sort of supply deficit again. You were talking about uh, lithium. That one of your themes being that uh, one commodity markets can be ruthless, and uh, you know the lithium specialty chemicals market is is showing all of the signs of of being, you know, a commodity. Could you share with us and our audience, I guess, your your, your background? I think you came to lithium a bit uh, later, um, you know, as price forecaster, et cetera, but but have been covering many, many, you know, other markets and bring that level of experience to the lithium forecasting commentary. Your background and, and what you've, you know, learned from that to to make you, you know, analyze, you know, lithium, you know, as a, as a commodity. Well, I've been a sort of a commodity analyst since... Um 1986, so you can do the maths on that, um, and covering precious metals and base metals, mainly base metals, uh, up until um, moving over into sort of lithium and, and cobalt and nickel. Um, so yeah, and one a lot of experience on you know on 
supply and demand analysis and forecasting, but also in uh, in commodities general and how they operate, um, but also in places like China. So it's, you know, one thing I have learned is China is very uh, adept at bringing on things fast and often over bringing on too much supply as well. But I think, you know, one of the things I have said over the last few years in the sort of the lithium space is um, don't underestimate the Chinese and uh, their ability to get the know-how and to catch up. Um, and I think we are in that situation now on the, on the supply side with the, their ability to um, produce sort of battery-grade materials from um, various different materials, and they have their sort of conversion plants as well. So I think, we, I think the fact uh, that sort of, that's one side of the supply side, so you've had the increase of obviously – uh, the Australian miners are producing spodumin, and I think the Chinese now are being able to produce battery-grade material uh, from that. Um, and I think it's interesting that you've seen uh, exports from South America into China falling, but exports from China um, pick, from China picking up. So I think that's again that's a sign that they are they have been able to increase um, their production as well. Um, and I think the more we see of that the more the fact we've got more producers now in the market than we had a few years ago um, I think that is another factor there's more supply around more producers more competition that's another factor which sort of, uh, makes lithium more of a commodity I still understand it is a specialty chemical and I totally understand that um, but I, it does show more commodity um, attributes at the moment and I think you know the fact we we have seen pick up in supply last year um, and not surprisingly we've seen prices come under downward pressure um, and I think we're now in a situation where you know prices will remain under pressure um, until we sort of see more supply restraint. Into the spodumin concentrate guys they've some of them are talking about getting new offtake partners that aren't based in China. I think what you will see um, is some OEMs more OEMs getting off take you know arranging offtake deals uh, with producers um, and they you know they'll either be in Europe or in the states um, as well so I think there is there will be that type of sort of divergence um, and I think you know some talks are underway on on things like that uh, uh, so yes I think there will be more now that uh, Livent and Albemarle have reported, we're only really awaiting SQM. All the ASX quarterlies kind of came out a few weeks ago. Rodney uh, wrote about five of the spodumene producers. We're going to talk a little bit about that and exchange thoughts, uh, you know, with Reg. Benchmark uh, wrote a publication recently in terms of all of the uh, conversion capacity in China and when it was meant to come online and where it's at now. We, we seem to be uh, we seem to be way behind there in terms of conversion capacity. The lithium industry has a very poor track record of, of meeting expectations when it comes to delivering new supply and delivering new ramp ups. Now, now China is is a slightly different case where a lot of the smaller converters uh, outside of the tier one and tier two arguably are suffering from lack of liquidity and lack of capital. Um, if the lithium price in China was at $20,000 a tonne, there's no shortage of capital available uh, to fund new converter plants. But when when China or, or a small converter plant is, is currently marginal, uh, you know, that capital is not available anymore. Uh, you've had prices come back from $20,000 a tonne to ten. 
Um, so the incentive for capital to flow into that industry is not there as it was two years ago. Um, now, com- compounding that, the tier one producers, like again, Feng, a Tianxi, uh, and even some of the smaller guys, like a General Lithium, a Yahua, um, you know, those ramp ups are, are, are taking longer than planned. But also, they're not generating as much margin and cash flow from their existing chemical sales to fund new plants. So, you know, it all becomes a bit of a domino effect. And then in turn, that puts pressure on the spodumene market, who uh, for the last two years have been told nothing but rising demand and converter capacity is going to be there. We're going to need your stage two and your stage three expansions. And that's um, and that's going to... Um, uh, drive the, the way and the behaviour that the Spodgerman guys do. So it, it's all kind of unwinding. Um, now, we were always uh, cognizant of the fact that effective capacity um, is certainly not the same as installed capacity. And look, there's been a lot of commentary by many people um, uh, on, on this topic. But, you know, you only have to go back to 2018 and, and effective capacity in hard rock converters was still only running at about 65% on average. Um, so, you know, I think now the market is now coming to grips with this reality, um, but not before, <laughs> not before we've seen some significant expansions in concentrate output. So I think that could lead to some pain uh, with the concentrate guys. Um, there is still some inventories that we've got to work through, and you saw that uh, after the recent reporting period, just between Galaxy, Pilbara, Altura and Alita, you've got uh, 150,000 tonnes of concentrate just sitting in stockpiles either at the mine or at the port. And that excludes yeah, any... Yeah, I've, I've commented on that is you've had all the cash from the balance sheet convert into working capital. Exactly. But, um, As you've seen, the litre is in a trading halt. Uh, they announced uh, a number of weeks ago that they're undertaking a strategic review. Now, uh, normally in my universe, strategic review has negative connotations, um, whereas what... Uh, Alita announced was actually more an operational review, <laughs> uh, which included uh, many aspects of, of the operation, uh, deferring the expansion, but also seeing if they, they weren't able to rework uh, one or two of their existing offtake contracts. In terms of Altura, some initial commissioning issues look like they've been uh, worked through and, and the operation seems to be running really well. It's pleasing to see a company uh, with their costs that low at sub $400 a tonne because that puts them in the ballpark of what their feasibility study estimates are and arguably that makes them the first company to be able to do that. Um, I think the real challenge for Altura is, is around operations and more around balance sheet. They have $140 million US dollars of debt that, it, that, that matures uh, in about 12 months' time. Um, so if you're a financier to Altura today and they can't refinance uh, those notes, and you, instead of taking ownership of the asset, uh, you could be, you know, it, it could be quite a, an expensive piece of money. Rich, they've done very well in terms of getting new buyers on the books and, and keeping their inventories in check. Yes, they have, and, and I think this could come down to their product quality. Um, the fact that they were able to attract the GAN Feng for not immaterial volumes speaks for their product quality, and, and this flows back to their process design, um, which is different than what Pilbara had put in place. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, you must applaud them for their efforts on marketing, um, but they had to. <laughs> uh, you know, they had some issues with, with JRO, 
Um, they had some issues with Linergy, and, and obviously they're looking at up-tiering uh, the quality of their offtake partners, which hopefully in time should allow them uh, to, to refinance, uh, refinance that debt. Um, but uh, right now, you know, the balance sheet is probably arguably the largest overhang on, on, on that company in terms of an equity investment perspective. I, I agree with that, and uh, it's a question of how how long this this low price pain um, w- will endure. Um, and Shan Shan, what, what do you make of that? I mean, that's a pretty significant investment, um, both the uh, new equity and and the purchase on market. Yeah, it was an interesting arrangement. Um, our understanding was that uh, Shan Shan were owed money by uh, JNR Optimum, and and so um, the the the. The, the equity that they have taken um, was arguably uh, in exchange for closing out some of those loans. Um, what was more interesting is is that further strategic partnership there with, with Shan Shan being a cathode nano producer but have no uh, conversion capacity. Um, but, but that gives them the ability to put their foot on that product and control where it goes. And, and we might see them actually look to toll treat some of that. Um, so, look, Altura have arguably been the most active on the marketing front of, and, and have del- delivered some high-quality names to their offtake book, um, and they've arguably got a more stable group on their share register in, in Shanshan versus, uh, versus JRO. Well, that's for sure. What do you think about Pilbara and, and their ramp-up vis-a-vis Altura, and what's, uh, what do you foresee in Pilbara in the next couple of quarters? I I think that the ramp up should proceed. Um, you know, obviously they've been a little bit slower than an Altura. They've had some initial, uh, let's call them teething issues with production um, volumes. And from what I understand, they've had some issues with product spec, um, and that's revolved a little bit about with with the iron content of the concentrate and also the moisture. Um, but look, these aren't uh, critical issues. They're not insurmountable and expect to see them work through over the next little while. In fact, um, uh, Pilbara were expected to complete an upgrade of their filtration circuit this quarter, for example. And if you are having uh, iron contamination in your concentrate, it basically can be resolved through the installation of a few magnets. So, you know, some of the issues that, that Pilbara have had, I don't expect to be terminal or critical by, by any stretch. Um, I, I think the biggest thing facing Pilbara today is is where they stand on their their planned expansions. You know, do they still do a stage two um, uh, on the timeline that they've currently suggested? Uh, will they get a bid um, at the end of their official process, which which finishes this quarter? Um, uh, I, I'm a little less circumspect uh, that they will get a bid uh, at the end of this process, which would arguably allow them to fund stage two and and, and move downstream. Um, I'm sorry, you said you, you are, are le- less circumspect or more circumspect? I mean, do you think it'll sorry, happen? Or? I think it's unlikely. Um, but it all comes down to price. They, they may get bids, but uh, are those bids of a sufficient price that that um, that supports Pilbara's view, own view of, of what their asset is worth over the, long to, uh, the medium to longer term? Um, remember that they're only selling between 20 to 49% of the project. And, and if you're a buyer... Uh, what are you actually bidding for? Noting that the the offtake rights to both stage one and stage two have already been sold, so you're buying somewhere between twenty to forty nine percent of the mine, and you're buying rights to stage three offtake, and you're buying rights to capital costs for a potential converter plant. Uh, 
Um, I, I just don't think there are any groups out there in the market that, that would be willing to pay a value for a big value for that today. So the value in Wagino was that was uh, that everything was available in comparison. Exactly, and the value at Kidman was that everything was available. Yeah. So, Richard, what, what do you think uh, the probabilities of Pilbara reaching the low three hundreds as a cash cost by Q four? Uh, well, what they've delivered to date suggests that that probability is low. Um, let's see how they go uh, as they ramp up volumes. Um, I was circumspect that Altura could have uh, delivered costs to that level as well, but they seem to have, um, or at least they're, they're certainly heading in the right direction. Um, there will be some material improvements, obviously, needed for Pilbara to get to that level. Um, but uh, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. The best way to play lithium, arguably, uh, in the Australian small cap space has been through two companies that aren't in production yet, you know, Lithium Power and, and, and Piedmont. Um, with Piedmont, um, I, I think most people are attracted to that story uh, on the basis that it, it's looking to be an integrated hard rock. Uh, it's, it couldn't be better located there in, in southeast US. Uh, I visited the project uh, year before last and was amazed by uh, the logistical benefits and, and the sheer beauty of, of being uh, where they are relative to the, the normal remote uh, projects that I'm used to here in Australia. Um, and uh, they seem to be delivering on the resource, uh, resource upgrades and you know, that resource will get bigger in time. So, you know, Piedmont is, is certainly delivering um, uh, on, on their project milestones. Uh, the integrated nature of that hard rock should see them mostly avoid the indigestion that we're currently seeing in the in the concentrates market. And look, the strategic value of that asset, I, I think, will become more uh, prevalent, uh, or the perception of the strategic value of that asset will become more prevalent than over the over the uh, next little while. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you guys have spoken a lot about the, the US strategy around securing critical minerals, and and this feeds right into that and in, into that. So. Um, no, we, we, uh, we like Piedmont and, and we like their chances for success. And, and what about lithium power? I've, uh, I've been attracted for lithium power for some time. You know, Chile is a far more stable jurisdiction than Argentina. We've obviously seen what happened over the weekend. Um, you know, the Argentinian stock market was down 35% one day yesterday. And, and while that may not necessarily directly impact uh, some of the Brian guys in Argentina, the, the, the perception of instability will be enough to, to give share prices uh, or, or drive volatility in those share prices. Um, notwithstanding, you've, you've got the impact on currencies and local operating costs and 55% inflation. Um, so I've always liked Chile from that perspective. It is far more stable, but also... Uh, LPI's asset in Maracunga it is a high-quality brine project. Um, unlike a lot of the ones in Argentina, it's got access to infrastructure. You've got roads, you've got power. Uh, they have secured water rights already. Um, notwithstanding that, uh, uh, the chemistry of the deposit is very good, very, very high lithium grades, which is uh, you know almost double what you see on average in Argentina. Now, that Cadelco deal, even though what they've announced to the market still begs a lot of questions, you know, what is the ultimate ownership of the joint venture? 
who's going to be contributing what. Um, uh, but there are some very material benefits that will flow from that that joint venture, notwithstanding that you, the, the combined entity will have all the permits that they need. Um, you know, LPI have their, uh, their, their export licence, which is the CSHEN. Uh, they've completed the EIA. They've got a definitive feasibility study uh, that, that's completed, uh, whereas Cadelco bring in the CL, which is effectively the production permit. Um, so you've now got an entity pro forma that has all the necessary permits to develop the project. But Cadelco also brings a balance sheet. Um, it also uh, brings uh, additional tenure, which you could argue will bring additional resources into the pro forma, which gives you the potential to upscale from 20,000 tonnes or gives you a longer mine life. So there are multiple benefits that are going to flow from this partnership and, and um, I think these are now being reflected in the share price, which has gone from $0.20 cents, uh, a few months ago to be trading at 45 um, you know, there aren't many lithium uh, companies on the planet that have doubled their share price in the last six months. So uh, it's, it's a very material milestone for lithium power and, and it does put them in good stead uh, ahead of an FID um, and potential financing and offtake discussions, which we think uh, might start in early 2020. On, on a medium to longer term view, Oracobre is, is one of our, our top picks in, in the sector. Um, and in an environment where margins are contracting and balance sheets are becoming issues and, and previously mooted expansion plans are being curtailed, you know, Oracobre is actually well placed. Despite their well publicised um, uh, ramp up issues, despite their well publicised product specification and product quality issues, Oracobra still makes money, and and this goes back to you know one of your investing one hundred and one uh, points uh, when it comes to commodities is you have to be at the bottom left of the cost curve, and that's firmly where Oracobra sits. Um, they have a very healthy balance sheet. They are diversifying into into hydroxide through Naraha in Japan. They've got a stage two that's coming online. They've got a better understanding as to how to work through uh, the climate difficulties that they have. Um, and I think their stage two expansion plans should see them avoid most of the issues they had during their stage one ramp up. Um, so on a medium to longer term view, Oracobra is well placed. I, I just think in the shorter term, this insta- political instability and 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 uh, economic instability in Argentina is going to impact investor sentiment. Um, so anyone looking to take a longer term bet on Oracobre might be uh, disheartened a little bit or, or be made a little nervous around what's going on in Argentina. You're, you're moving away from a pro-business government uh, back to potentially a, a socialist-style government. And um, over the Kitchener years in Argentina, that didn't really work out so well. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how Oracobre trades today um, and over the next little while uh, leading up to the election in October. What would the impact be if the China EV subsidies are fully withdrawn next year? We noted in our research in April that, that the complete withdrawal of subsidies um, could lead to some volatility in sales. And, and uh, we, our modelling uh, is looking at basically only around 1.4, 1.5 million unit sales in, in China this year. So that rate of change in terms of uh, growth 
uh, it was starting to slow. Um, based on that uncertainty around the subsidies, um, there is no doubt there is going to be uh, an impact on China unit sales uh, on the basis of lower subsidies. But it, it's important to remember that the Chinese are very, very keen to ensure this happens. And what you might see is a change from their approach. Instead of offering subsidies to the buyer of EVs, that funding might go into other parts of the EV supply chain in order to encourage increased adoption. And what you might see is, is um, increased charging infrastructure, for example, or uh, increased rollout in, in more rural areas away from your, your heavy, heavily populated centres in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, it's really difficult to quantify at this stage. Um, what we do know is that typically uh, unit sales throughout the course of a year tend to be stronger in China in, in Q4 relative to Q1. But that's only because of the step change or the step down in Chinese subsidies that were in place previously. Um, you can easily chart quarter-on-quarter uh, -quarter unit sales in China um, and, the, and the spike in sales in Q4 before those subsidies stepped down in, in Q1 of the subsequent year. So um, if those subsidies are removed altogether, uh, you know, are we going to see certainly some volatility or is it more of a case that the adoption rate would just slows a little bit, um, noting that it, <laughs> the adoption rate has been, it's been very rapid uh, over the last couple of years in China? I mean, you still have the NEV policy overall, so there is still <clears throat> some requirements, uh, you know, in terms of sales. But I'm just wondering if if that removal in subsidies would then also have a roll-on impact on battery size. Well, we know that it's having an impact on the chemistry of the batteries and battery size. If you if you go back and have a look at the subsidies, one of the qualifying factors is driving range. And, and the two things that give you a, an, an all-electric driving range is your energy density and your battery size. Um, and we've, I know you guys have talked about this shift away from your LFP towards your higher energy density batteries like your NCMs and your NCAs. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the, the battery size is going to play an important part of that. So, um, yes, maybe we do see larger batteries uh, as opposed to uh, larger volumes of cars with smaller batteries. If you look at uh, what's happening, not with uh, what companies are disclosing for their cash costs, and this is a spodumin concentrate producers, but if you look at their cash balances as they move from quarter to quarter and their inventories, where do you see the bottom for spodumin concentrate 6% prices? Uh, our, our current forecasts uh, are low 600s, but already we've probably fallen through that. Um, so uh, our, our forecast might need some reworking. I, I think we should be thinking about spodumene with a five handle um, into 2020 uh, and perhaps even 2021 and until these inventories are worked through uh, and, and lithium chemical prices in China rise, which, which, give, you, which give the converters the margin. And then that, theoretically, that margin then flows upstream to the, the spodumene guys. Now, a lot of the, the cash costs that these spodumene producers have reported in that last round of quarterlies uh, are a little bit misleading. You know, they've reported uh, costs of production, not your cost of goods sold. Um, so if, if you have a look at the cost of goods sold for Alita, for Galaxy, for Pilbara, um, they actually lost money last quarter. Um, so um, while... 
production costs coming down uh, is a good uh, milestone for a lot of these guys. Um, they need to be able to sell that stuff at the same time. 100%. So, um, yeah, look, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think we should be thinking about uh, spodumene prices with a five handle uh, moving into next year. Um, and, uh, again, we still need to see uh, not an insignificant amount of inventory work through and at the same time converter capacity ramp up um, before, before we see spodumene prices rising. Um, uh, to, to back to anywhere near the previous levels. Well, you can lean on Rodney and me now for a bit of banter. Uh, that song was Let It Bleed. Uh, Rodney wrote and, and I collaborated on uh, something called Wait in Vain, Jamaica Me Crazy. I would encourage you to read the last lithium-ion bull, which included a extensive section on on Rodney covering, you know, the five spodumene producers: Alita, Pilbara, Altura, Mineral Resources, and Galaxy. As we know, Alita raised capital from its anchor shareholders, including Galaxy. What has transpired from there is that they have effectively taken that cash and converted it into working capital because they haven't managed to sell what they are producing. Their their cost of production is still a little high because they're still relatively high in strip ratio as they uh, continue to expand. So, uh, unfortunately, they found themselves in a position where, you know, I did the mass this quarter. They needed to sell about 45,000 tonnes of production in order to avoid breaching the debt covenant with Tribeca. So they have, uh, you know, they also have the issue of, of their offtake partner, Ajanti. They have a 680 floor, which, given where uh, chemical prices are in China, that's probably going to put them in a bit of a pickle. So they uh, they find themselves in a position where they need to sell more of their product. What I... You know, I stand by my previous uh, positive thoughts on a litre. I think that um, they have the potential to drill out a meaningful resource, a long-life resource. The quality of the product is, is not up for debate. Um, it's a decent uh, spodumene concentrate. I think uh, if someone were to set up a plant with, their, with that spec in mind, that they would have, uh, assuming they have some reasonable... Uh, uh, expertise, they should have a good probability of producing, uh, you know, battery grade out of that material. So uh, they just need to re-engineer the balance sheet a bit. Um, they're not alone. It's just that they are the highest uh, cost producer at the moment and uh, likely in the future. And, you know, they just have sold way below what they're producing and, and find themselves in a bit of a squeeze. Yeah, debt is a is a problem. The market has shifted so fast, um, you know, from high prices to to low prices. Um, and uh, a, a project like Bald Hill, which had you know the first year high strip ratio, higher cost before you get into the lower cost, you just you just get caught out by uh, the very fast um, you know decline in in, in demand. Um, at the same time, a lot of you know spodumene supply 
came online. So I believe, I think as you do, that the Bald Hill ore um, will become a fixture uh, for a long time to come in the spodium, sorry, in the lithium chemical supply chain, as will Pilgangora's ore. But um, as an equity uh, holder, uh, when you have secured debt at a high price, this is the pain that you suffer uh, when the market moves, you know, in the wrong way at the time that you are ramping up and you're not yet at full capacity. Uh, Roskill's uh, Jake Frazier wrote a nice note about this as well on LinkedIn. I'd encourage anybody um, to listen or to read that as well. Democracy in uh, Hong Kong has been a, in a, a very significant political issue. Um, and Argentina, if I just look at uh, Ganfeng, you know, Hong Kong and Argentina has not been a great, um, you know, week. But uh, in particular, they needed to execute a Hong Kong rights offer because they were executing a Shenzhen convert, which uh, the underlying, you know, equity would have meant that the the Hong Kong listing would have, you know, had less than fifteen percent free float. And there's a, there's a rule that, uh, you know, the Hong Kong has to be at least 15%. And, uh, you know, they had an EGM and they got the votes for everything but the Hong Kong listing. They needed 67% vote or 66, uh, two-thirds vote. They only got 65%. Uh, I tweeted about this. You know, their cornerstone IPO shareholders included Samsung and LG Chem and four state-owned uh, you know, Chinese, you know, car companies or other other ways tied to the, you know, this industry. So I doubt those guys voted no. I know Oak Tree was one of the filing shareholders as a hedge fund and maybe a few other hedge funds uh, were in there. I'm, I'm presuming they voted no, but, but it's a real question. Um, is this financing somehow delayed? Like, or, or what are they going to do? They can't go ahead with the Shenzhen if uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how long uh, corporate filings. I know here, South Africa. I think it's like 21 business days or what have you. They could speak to shareholders and then refile to do the vote. Um, and it was interesting that the Shenzhen uh, shareholders waved it through. It was just Hong Kong. Yeah. So it seems. Uh, look, look, I, it I'm seems a- the protest has come from the streets into the boardroom, but. Um, I'm a, I'm a shareholder in Ganfeng, and um, I hold my account at Interactive Brokers, and I was never sent a proxy in the way that, like, for my Australian shares, um, you know, for Alita, if I needed to vote, I could have voted. Um, I was not given an opportunity to vote from Ganfeng, and I wonder how many other shareholders, you know, are like that. So I'm a majorly disappointed, you know, in Ganfeng since the IPO in terms of their communication with investors. I mean, here we are, we're talking about what did Liven say? What did Luke Kassam say? And, you know, the sound of silence Ganfeng um, basically uh, only talks, you know, through their filings, and they make a lot of news, right? The back in Nora, um, you know, was was another deal. But, like, the use of proceeds, they were trying to raise $450 million, $350 million through the convert, you know, $100 million through the rights offer. And the convert money uh, was very significantly for Lithium Americas, you know, Minera XR, as well as, uh, you know, working capital to buy spodumene. So to the extent that there's any delay in closing this transaction, um, it could be a negative for Bacanora, it could be a negative for LAC, it could be a negative for Altura and Pilbara. 
who are their offtake partners and have been slow buying from them. Um, and I think the their most, uh, you know, the mineral resources, Mount Marion would be the last thing that they would cut. Question mark, you know, around that, and also question mark continued with, with, with the trade war, you know, and and also I, I just hope that things don't get worse, um, you know, with these Hong Kong protests. But uh, a lot to follow up on here. Um, there's a lot of stories and, and unanswered questions. You mentioned just going back to Livent. Livent is predicting 140,000 tons this year of hydroxide supply which is crazy higher than anybody is is forecasting and um, so and runs counter to this narrative uh, we referenced um, you know Andy Miller's benchmark with all of these uh, tier two and tier three converters that are kind of in construction but not yet in production um, and, and all talking about the, the you know Pilbara the, the conversion bottleneck you know here we're hearing Livent saying, uh, there's actually 140,000 tons of essentially battery-grade hydroxide that, that, that they're competing against. Where is that coming from? Is that Shanghai brine, you know, converted by some of the same guys that clean up, uh, you know, Aura Cobras? You know, I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, I know you don't either, but it's, it's one that um, uh, I'm looking into in the next kind of couple of weeks and months, as well as these questions on, on Ganfing and Albemarle. So with that, uh, I think we will conclude, Rodney, this uh, first episode of our second season. It's been great working with you uh, since the beginning of the year. I'll remind all listeners, uh, we are on Patreon, so please visit the Patreon website. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and type in Lithium Ion Rocks, and get out your credit card or your PayPal or your Venmo or whatever, and... Start, um, you know, contributing one, five, twenty-five, fifty, or a hundred dollars a month to ensure that this lithium equity intelligence continues to come your way. Lithium Ion Rocks, Lithium Ion Bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.